From Alaska Teen Media Institute, this is Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. We're bringing you stories, interviews, and audio diaries from teenagers and young adults stuck at home with nothing better to do. I'm Atme producer Quinn White, recording this on my iPhone in Los Angeles, since the Atme studio is closed for the time being. In this episode, Atme producer Sam Burnett spoke with former Atme member Tony Glavinek, who's now living in Mexico City. Before heading to American University, Tony was involved with Atme from 2006 through 2008. In this interview, Tony tells Sam about getting COVID in Mexico. They spoke on November 24th, 2020. So could you just tell me like the whole story of your COVID experience, I guess? So, you know, I've, since the pandemic started, we've been really intentional about taking precautions, um, you know, not having gatherings uh, really at all um, with a couple of exceptions, you know, outdoors, socially distanced, always wearing masks, washing our hands, diligently. But last month, I, uh, I traveled from Mexico City to Washington, D.C. for combination of um, catching up on medical appointments. I still have a lot of doctors there because I have U.S. health insurance. Picking up some things that I left at a co-worker's house when I was in the process of moving from Spain to Mexico back in December <laughs> and some work meetings. And, you know, given, well, I started feeling sick basically the night that I got back from D.C. I was there for nine days, so it's a little hard to say whether I was exposed in D.C. or, you know, somewhere in Mexico. I think chances are pretty good that it was while I was in D.C., just given the amount of um, moving around that I was doing. I, w- I wasn't doing much moving around in Mexico before I, uh, before I traveled. But, you know, the night that I got back, I was feeling really tired, sort of out of nowhere. Uh, over the next couple of days, I started developing a cough, mostly cough and fatigue were my primary symptoms. I never developed a fever, although my, like, my temperature tends to run a little bit low but my temperature was never over 100, um, sort of like throughout. But fatigue, uh, some coughing, I started having some difficulty breathing. It was noticeably difficult, you know, just like moving around the apartment, like walking from uh, the bedroom to the kitchen took a lot of effort. And that's probably like 15 steps, you know, and then I was having trouble sleeping. I was waking up a lot, um, feeling like I couldn't sort of like catch a full breath. And so that's why I 
decided to to go to the hospital just to get checked out. And so I went to Hospital Medicasur, um, which is a private hospital in Mexico City, accredited by the Joint Commission, which is the U.S. Um, like accrediting body for hospitals, uh, and they're an affiliate of the Mayo Clinic, um, and they also are a network for my health insurance, which is super rare outside the U.S. So I went there to the emergency department. My partner rode with me in a an Uber. Pretty quickly, I I was like we were separated. I was taken into a triage room where they checked my oxygen saturation, uh, which was about 88%, um, my blood pressure, my heart rate, and took down some information while my partner talked to someone else to give them you know, my ID and my health insurance card um, and find out what the administrative pieces were. And then I was moved into a bed in the emergency department or the emergency room with a very, very loud, uh, machine checking my vitals and beeping incessantly. Um, they hooked me up to supplemental oxygen and were just continuously monitoring my oxygen levels, blood pressure, pulse rate. You know, after I think a couple of hours, um, took me to get a CT scan, uh, which revealed that I had multifocal pneumonia. You know, I didn't see the picture, but I, I assume it was pretty typical of what you've read about pneumonia caused by COVID-19, the sort of like broken glass looking for crushed glass um, on the, the CT. Um, so they told me that they were going to admit me um, to the hospital. Uh, at that point, they didn't know obviously how long I would be there. I had to wait, I think an hour and a half for a hospital bed to be available. We had called them uh, before I went to the hospital, um, and they said at that point, I think they had two open beds for for COVID patients. Um, it's a 170-bed hospital. I don't know how many of those are set aside for uh, for COVID versus other uses. But so I was, I got to the hospital around 9 a.m., and I think it was about 4 o'clock uh, when... I was um, sort of got settled in my my hospital room. You still hooked up to oxygen. I wasn't allowed to have any visitors. Um, you know, the I think my my partner was able to say uh, sort of like wave at me from a distance um, in the ER uh, before he left. Um, I think he gave them um, a couple of things to give me, uh, like my Kindle and some chapstick you know, and my AirPods, which they disinfected and put in a plastic bag and then you know, had delivered to my room about an hour later. And then I had a friend drop off a charging cable for my Kindle a few days later. Yeah, but, so I was, I was in the hospital for, see, I checked in Sunday morning and was discharged Saturday afternoon. Um, so I was there for a full week. Um, and in that time, you know, the only people I saw in person were doctors and nurses. So they wore single-use um, protective gear, like like an outer scrubs, essentially, um, over their own clothes every time they came to the room. Um, and before they left, they took those off and, and put them in the trash. 
I'm fairly certain that everything that I came into contact with uh, was incinerated, including like the bed sheets, pretty much anything except their expensive hospital equipment. <laughs> like they had uh, a vitals machine that they you know that went from room to room and just got disinfected in between. But bed sheets, hospital gowns, pillows, blankets, slippers. Um, is there anything I didn't take home with me when I left? I'm pretty sure got incinerated. While I was at the hospital, uh, I was on oxygen for I think the first five days. And then they, they sort of like turned it down over time and then turned it off completely about 24 hours before I left. There was at one point some uncertainty about whether uh, they would be sending me home with supplemental oxygen or not. Um, part of the reason they didn't was insurance related. Like they just didn't, my they contacted my insurance company for approval and just didn't hear back from them. But at that point I was able to breathe well enough on my own that it became no longer necessary. And then I don't know all of the uh, medications they gave me. I, my understanding is there were anti-inflammatories, uh, antihistamines. I had a couple of in inhalers, an inhaled steroid and an inhaled um, antihistamine, I think, um, which I'm still using for another week. You know, it was really mostly like keeping my immune system from sort of like getting out of control, trying to get the inflammation down so that my lungs could clear the pneumonia, you know, with, with some help and then keeping me hydrated. And then they, you know, they check my vitals every few hours. Um, and every day or almost every day, um, first thing in the morning, they would draw blood, um, to check for, um, the main thing they were looking for is something called a C-reactive protein, which is an indicator of, of inflammation levels. And it was, it went down consistently over my time in the hospital, which was a really good sign. And then they, they were also checking for, you know, things like kidney function and sort of like basic blood work. I also enrolled in a clinical trial while I was there uh, for a drug whose name I keep forgetting, but I can send you if you want. Um, it's a uh, drug that's typically used in diabetes patients um, and uh, AstraZeneca and St. John's Hospital of Kansas, I think, is exploring whether it improves outcomes in uh, patients with high blood pressure uh, who have COVID-19. And so I am taking either that or a placebo. It's a double blind trial um, for 30 days, uh, from when I checked into the hospital. Um, and then they'll, I think I have to talk with um, a researcher at like 30, 60, 90 days from, from when I was admitted. Um, I think that, that pretty much covers it. I was, I was discharged on the 14th and have pretty much been home since then. I think I'm recovering pretty well. My oxygen levels are, are back to normal, uh, which is great. Yeah, it's just sort of like taking it easy, recuperating, um, and I'll go back to see my um, 
pneumologist a month after I was discharged uh, with a new, I'll, I'll get a, a new CT scan um, and then have a, a check in with him to make sure everything is as it should be. What was the time period between when you first realized you had COVID, when you first tested positive, and when you went to the hospital? I started experiencing symptoms on October 28th. I got a COVID test on October 31st, got the results on November 1st, and it was positive. And then I went to uh, the hospital on November 8th. And when did you um, like realize that it was like a pretty severe case or like, was that a, did that come as a surprise to you after the first week of it? Like how, how was the first week of COVID? Yeah. I mean, the, it's, it was tricky. Like I, I really didn't want to believe that, um, that I was getting worse. Um, so I, I had a virtual visit with one of my doctors in the U S um, on Monday the 2nd, and they basically said, you know, stay home, you know, isolate from other members of your household to the extent possible, uh, stay hydrated. You can take, um, you know, ibuprofen and over-the-counter, you know, cough medicine, uh, if that's helpful. That was the only appointment, or that was my only appointment with a medical provider before I went to the hospital a week later, or yeah, basically a week later. You know, so I was I was just at home taking cough syrup and ibuprofen and um, Tylenol. I was checking my blood oxygen levels. I saw that they were sort of like trending downwards, um, but I was kind of rationalizing it. Um, you know, I was like, well, since we're at a really high altitude here in Mexico City, the um, sort of like baseline reading is usually like 93 to 95% as opposed to, you know, 97 to 98 or 99 at sea level. Um, so I was like, well, you know, if my readings are like 92, 91, that's not that abnormal. So I, I was mostly in denial that it was getting worse. Uh, but, you know, it was until that last night before I went to the hospital, it was mostly just pretty uncomfortable. Like I was really tired. I was having coughing fits occasionally, um, but not not super frequent. And I was just mostly spending most of my time in bed. But yeah, it was really like that that last night when I was like waking up constantly. Um, you know, I think I probably got at best two hours of sleep that night, that was like, okay, this is, something's wrong. We'll be right back. All of us at Atme have been working from home during the pandemic. We are still looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much, much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska and interested in joining Atme, go to alaskateenmedia.org join. 
You could also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Sam and Tony. And like, obviously going to the hospital is always, you know, a very unpleasant experience, but how did uh, like COVID contribute to that for you? Like, did it make it, did it feel any different? You know, obviously they they were taking uh, extra precautions. I think the, um, the main difference, I've never been admitted to the hospital before. You know, I think I, I spent one night at, um, at a hospital in Chicago for a, a study I was part of years ago, but, um, but I've never like been admitted to hospital because I was sick. Um, so I don't have a great frame of reference. The biggest difference was uh, the fact that I had to be alone. Um, you know, especially like in hospitals here in Mexico, typically, uh, I know at this hospital in particular, their usual policy is um, you actually have to have a family member in the room with you pretty much all the time. So this is a pretty significant departure from that, um, not being able to, to see anyone at any point. And then obviously the precautions that they were taking in terms of you know N95 masks, uh, single use outerwear every time they came in the room, even after I was no longer considered contagious, and then you know discarding everything as sort of biomedical waste. But um, you know, I think the, the other thing that um, that I noticed was I could tell they were really busy. There's one day when I, I think I had three, three or four doctors that I saw over the course of the week. One of them was an infectious disease specialist. And I remember one day he, towards the end of the week, he came and saw me at like 8.30 at night because he'd just been, he had been seeing patients all day. And that was when he could come and see me. He told me at that point that the hospital was completely full um, and there were more patients coming to the emergency room, even though they were full. And he said that he was going to try and come see me earlier the next day and I never actually saw him again. Um, I think that was like a day and a half before I left the hospital. So like everywhere else, um, you know, I think the, the number of patients uh, is definitely taking a toll on healthcare workers. You know, I think the ones that I saw because I was at a private hospital, um, I think are in a much better position than public healthcare workers here in Mexico. You know, I, I know that the public hospitals are just completely overwhelmed um, and you know, they already didn't have enough staffing and resources before the pandemic. Um, so this has just made everything so much worse. Was there ever any concern about like lack of um, oxygen, uh, supplemental oxygen or hospital space or anything like that? Um, not once I, once I got out of the hospital, um, it was, you know, I felt pretty confident that you know, they had, would have the resources um, just because it is a, a pretty um, high-end private hospital. Honestly, like if I'd gotten sicker a, a couple of days later, it might have been a different story um, because, you know, the week that I was in the hospital, the rate of hospital admissions in Mexico City went from 20 a day to 100 a day. And I know 
that both Medicasor and ABC Medical Center, uh, which is the other Joint Commission accredited uh, medical facility in Mexico City, uh, were both full uh, of COVID patients by the middle of that week. I'm not sure what kind of position the other private hospitals were in, uh, but you know, I think if if my symptoms had deteriorated a couple of days later, I think it could have been a much more difficult to find uh, private hospital to go to. Um, and the financial side would have also been more complicated, I think. I was really lucky that uh, Medicus Word does have a relationship with Blue Cross Blue Shield uh, because otherwise I would have had to put down a deposit of um, thousands of dollars, uh, potentially as, as much as fifteen or $20,000 um, when I was admitted to the hospital. And that would have been very challenging. <laughs> Yeah, like, how does the medical system work in Mexico? Like, do, do most people have insurance, or are the public hospitals completely yes. free? I am not exactly an expert, uh, but my yeah. understanding is um, there's a few, or there, there's a few different public health systems. Um, sort of like how in the U.S. there's like you know you have the VA um, and you have military hospitals. Uh, it's the same way here in Mexico, there are like the branches of the military have their own health systems. Um, and then there's a, there are two big uh, public health systems that are sort of more widely available. Uh, one is called EAMS, the Institute, or, uh, the Institute of the Medical and Social Security Institute, uh, essentially, which is the primary public health system. Um, and it's, sort of like private insurance in the US, it's tied to your employer. Um, so your employer pays into the EAMS uh, system and then you, you, know, you get an ID card uh, that allows you access to EAMS hospitals and doctors. And then there's, uh, there's another separate health system for uh, federal and state employees um, called ISTE, uh, basically the Social Security Institute for um, state workers so there's you know I, and i think in total there's like six or seven different branches of public health system and then there is a a public health insurance option for uh people who don't have access to eams through their employer and i think the way that works is there's um there's no cost to enroll um and then uh, but you do have some cost sharing like you do have to pay something at the point of service uh, like when you go to the hospital or go to the doctor and then there's private insurance uh companies um and it's it's really strange uh most of the insurance companies actually have offices at the private hospitals so like there's a whole section of the first floor of one of the towers at Medica Store that is just insurance company offices. I don't know a whole lot about how those work. Um, although my understanding is typically you have to pay for services up front and then get reimbursed afterwards. And it will be some percentage of, uh, you know, of what you paid depending on the type of insurance that you have. 
with the private insurances, uh, it's typically not something that that your employer uh, will provide. Although some, um, I think, larger employers um, or like if you have a a pretty good job, uh, your company might pay for private insurance for you in addition to paying into the EAMS system. But you know, a lot of people also just pay out of pocket for it. Um, and how is your insurance company about covering costs of COVID related things? Yeah, so um, I haven't actually gotten the explanation of benefits yet um, from them that sort of breaks down how they covered things um, and how they approached it. But um, because I, Medicasor has a relationship with them of, of some kind, um, basically Blue Cross Blue Shield is a sort of national network of a bunch of local insurance companies. And then they have a sort of international arm uh, that coordinates claim submission for, you know, when you need services overseas. Uh, so there, there is a separate entity called um, Geo Blue or Blue Cross Blue Shield Global um, that basically acts as an intermediary between my health insurance company, which is based in DC, because that's where uh, the company I work for is based, um, and the hospital here in Mexico. Yeah, I don't know what happened administratively when I got to the hospital because I wasn't there for that part. But I, I think they basically took my insurance information, called up the insurance company to verify that my coverage was valid um, and what my sort of payment arrangements were with them. Uh, and then before I left the hospital, I had to pay the remainder of my deductible um, for the year, uh, which was about $3,200. Um, and that will actually get reimbursed by my employer. Uh, they, they have an arrangement where they have a high deductible health insurance plan because it is a lot cheaper than lower deductible plan. Uh, but then they provide employees with a health reimbursement account that covers the amount of the deductible um, because mm -hmm. that sort of like averaged over the all of the employees in the company ends up being significantly less expensive than just getting a plan that has a lower deductible to begin with. Because um, most people aren't going to use their full $5,000 deductible uh, in a given year. Yeah, so I think my total bill was seven or $8,000. Uh, which obviously is way, way less than it would have been in this been a week in the hospital in the US. Mm -hmm. And I paid the remainder of my deductible and uh, rest of it will be um, paid directly to the hospital by Blue Cross Blue Shield. And then I had a couple of, so my COVID tests and my partner's COVID tests, which we just bought from a private uh, startup that sends someone to your house to stick a swab up your nose mm -hmm. uh, and then send it to the lab that was I paid for that out of pocket and then sent a claim and they covered a hundred percent of that uh, without applying it to my deductible so I didn't pay anything out of pocket for our COVID tests I guess like what did you what were your takeaways from this experience in terms of thinking about COVID so one big takeaway was that you know even if you're being really conscious and really careful. Obviously it's impossible to eliminate 
all of your risk. Um, and so it's really important to, to mitigate your risk uh, as much as possible. You know, I was, it was definitely kind of frustrating to, uh, you know, to get COVID, even though I was trying to be really careful um, about things when there are so many people not taking precautions to protect themselves and others. Um, but, you know, life happens. I, I feel like I was incredibly lucky. You know, I things could have gone much worse in terms of uh, my symptoms. You know, ultimately, like, I got pneumonia. I needed oxygen for a few days, but there was, you know, I wasn't in the ICU from the moment I checked into the hospital. Uh, the, the doctors were pretty optimistic about my, my recovery. And, uh, you know, after a day or two, it moved from sort of optimism to near certainty that everything was going to be fine. Um, so it was definitely scary, uh, especially right at the beginning, um, you know, realizing that I was sick enough to need hospitalization. It was really scary for my partner because, um, you know, we've never been in a, neither of us has been in a situation like this before, you know, and, and of course my friends and family. Um, but, you know, I, I was really lucky both in terms of having a relatively mild uh, case as far as cases that require hospitalization go. <laughs> you know, I think technically it like, I, I'm still unclear as to whether sort of based on my symptoms and trajectory, uh, if mine was like a moderate or severe case, but it was definitely on the mild end. So uh, it was really lucky that I didn't get sicker than I did. Um, also incredibly fortunate to have health insurance uh, that provides coverage, uh, you know, where I live. So I didn't have, you know, I wasn't facing down tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in medical costs. And I'm particularly cognizant of that being here in Mexico. You know, I think my partner told me at one point, my week at the hospital costs almost half of what his mom paid for her house. And so this is a, a level of care that is out of reach for the vast majority of people here. I, ju I just have to sort of sit with that recognition of of the level of privilege that I have living here. Um, and I do point on, uh, you know, as soon as I'm able, which I think will be the end of this week, uh, I'm planning to go to the Eames Central Blood Bank and uh, donate plasma that they can try to use to help uh, other patients. That was At Me producer Sam Burnett speaking with former At Me member Tony Glavinek. You've been listening to Podcast in Place, Youth Stories from Quarantine from Alaska Teen Media Institute. 
Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Schreckengost with additional music by Kendrick Whiteman. Stay tuned for more stories from quarantined youth. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth during quarantine in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Denina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including John O'Hara, James McCoy, United Way of Anchorage, the Alaska Humanities Forum, and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of the National Endowment for the Humanities or other sponsors. To our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants. If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Teen Media Institute, I'm Quinn White. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there.